And the rest of us can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Everyone's found 1 Thessalonians 2 okay? So why don't I read from the scriptures? For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the boldness of, sorry, the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines the hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you've become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When people say one thing and do another, we very quickly learn that they can't be trusted and aren't worth listening to. At the same time, we know when a person's words and actions line up with one another, how powerful and influential that can be in our own lives. Well, this is Paul's message to us this morning as we dive into chapter two, that really how we live and conduct ourselves in relation to the message that we proclaim matters. And it matters to the degree that it can have an influencing effect on people coming to know who Jesus is. So what's going to be clear today, really, from Paul is sort of two things. One, he's going to get into the motive behind why he preached the gospel he did to them in the first place. And second, he's going to explain to us the reason why he chose to conduct himself in particular ways when he was amongst them. His message mattered, and how he lived mattered, and he saw them as congruent with one another. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2. For you, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst, amidst much opposition. What Paul's doing here in the opening verses is reminding the Thessalonians about his previous visit to them before this letter was written. And what their experience had been like in Philippi before their arrival and their arrival once they got to Thessalonica. And he's reminding them about what life was like. And I know Stephanie and Scott have just come back from a five-star holiday in Mexico. Their experience was nothing like a five-star experience in Mexico. You'll notice what it was filled of. When they were in Philippi, it says that they, were, they, had, been, they had been suffered, they had suffered, and were mistreated. 
and Thessalonica, they had received a lot of opposition. Now, if you want to read about what happened in Philippi and what happened in Thessalonica, they can be found in Acts chapter 16 and 17. But here's some of the things that happened. Beaten with rods, unjustly accused of things they didn't do, thrown in jail, shackled. Um, riots were started in the streets because of their preaching, and they were eventually forced to flee town. This is the kind of life that had happened and the kind of things they were living out amidst this opposition. Now, the question would come, therefore, why in the earth, why on earth, I should say, would Paul continue to preach such an unpopular message if it caused so much trouble for him? Why keep going if life is nothing but hardship by preaching Jesus and living a particular way? Well, in verse 2, he makes this claim that the reason for going on in the midst of such opposition was that their boldness was in God. Their boldness was in God. The boldness to preach did not come from a personality type. Well, I'm introverted. You're extroverted, so it's easy for you. It had nothing to do with their personality type. It had nothing to do with the education, whether they went to Bible school or not. It was strictly the fact that their confidence, their fearless confidence, their trust was fully in God. Paul's faith and his commitment to the gospel came from who he knew God to be, what his promises were in his life, and what he meant to him. That gave him the, the courage to continue in the midst of fear. King David was one who knew what it was like to live in opposition. Evie read Psalm 23, and he says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. King David knew what it was like to live in opposition. And I was reading in, about a month ago, just in my devotional life, about um, trying to learn from the Psalms and how to pray better. How did, how did David approach the Lord in prayer so I could learn in my own life? And I found this really amazing Psalm that struck me in Psalm 3. These are just snippets of it. He says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. So what is he doing? He's doing the very thing that Paul was doing a thousand years later. He's saying, I've got adversaries, I've got opposition, but Lord, my focus is not on my circumstances and who I am. I know you to be a shield. You are the glory. You are the one who lifts my head. And so he had confidence in the Lord. And that made him be able to live his life out in this world in the midst of much opposition. So when we read this from Paul, about he was willing to proclaim the gospel message in such hard, difficult times, you might be thinking, well, yeah, that would scare me too. The truth be told, it often scares me at times as well. 
but we can learn from Paul where our focus needs to be. Paul and his companions, Timothy and Silas, their eyes and their heart were focused upward to be able to handle this world. And having their eyes and heart lifted upward enabled them to go forward. And that is the lesson for us this morning. So Paul, Timothy, and Silas had confidence to preach because of their boldness in God. But there's also one more thing that was really important. And we pick this up in verses 4 and 6. Paul said this, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. In verse 6, he says again, nor did we seek glory from men. So Paul has a focus. His preaching, his willingness to endure hardship, has nothing to do with man's response to him and his attempts to please him. His, his Everything about the fabric of his being is he's focused on pleasing the Lord. Again, so it's not that Paul continued because he was, um, he loved conflict. He just made his chief aim to please God and not others, knowing that it was the Lord who examined his heart. His uh, heart specialist was the Lord. He gave him the medical exam to test his motives, to see who he was and why he was doing the things he did. And when Paul understood that his actions were going to be accountable to him ultimately, not to others. And so therefore, he was not going to stop. He wasn't going to change its content. He wasn't going to water it down to make it more acceptable to others and make it more compatible so that people would like him and that life would be more comfortable for him in this world. Knowing the Lord was his heart specialist, he wanted to show him in the end that there was going to be a healthy report. Now, the application for us is, is massive, isn't it? I can stand here as one attest to this. Some, sometimes there, my heart motives are more about pleasing man than God. Fearful of what they might think. Fearful of what they might say. Fearful how are they going to respond to me? And here's what's important for us to realize. When we think of the content of the gospel message, especially in light of what we learned last week in verse 10, remember the description of Jesus? We are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescued us from the wrath to come. Whoa. There's a Jesus who is defined as one to rescue us from judgment. To come. That's not a very popular message in a culture like we live in today, is it? Where truth is relative and how dare you judge me for my beliefs and so on. You can see why it's so easy to want to please men, to make life more comfortable and more palatable here because of the risks that this message might, might um, invoke in other people. And again, we're not saying that the gospel message is not about grace and love and mercy because it totally is. But that's one side of the coin. The reason why we need that is because we are going to be judged for our sins and the things that we have done. And so is the world. 
So the, Paul is teaching us, let's put our trust in him and let's seek to please him, knowing that it's the Lord who's our heart doctor in the end. So because this was God's good news, and Paul was happy to proclaim the gospel, he also recognized that there was not only the message he had to care for, there was also the way he conducted himself amongst the Thessalonican people. And he wanted to make sure that nothing in his life got in the way of Jesus' name being lifted up amongst non-Christian people, and nothing in his life would be an obstacle to people responding to him. In other words, Paul was okay with the message being a stumbling block to receiving Christ, but he was not okay with the messenger being a stumbling block to receiving Jesus Christ. The message, yes. The messenger, no. So there's a way to live in response to the gospel that matters to Paul. And so Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians of his previous conduct amongst them to show them that the, his motives were pure. His motives were pure. And so firstly, he reminds them that there was no error or attempt to deceive in his conduct amongst them. We pick this up in verse 3. Our exhortation does not come uh, from error or impurity or by way of deceit. So Paul's preaching when he came did not arise from, from a false, self-seeking motives and therefore to show that the gospel was not a sham. He was saying that what I like who I am and what I preach is authentic. And this was really important for Paul. Second, he said that he made no attempt to become popular. We really pick this up in verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Flattering speech. If you think of flattery, what's flattery? Flattery is buttering someone up with praise so that you gain their approval and you make them like you and they come on your team, if you will, and you gain influence. So when you, when you flatter someone, you're trying to win them to your side so they think highly of you and accept you. Paul denied being a smooth-talking preacher who attempted to inflate people's egos for the sake of personal gain. Paul wasn't in the ministry to be popular, to seek fame. His only goal was to please the Lord. And we can see how easy this is for us, can't we? Looking for ways to draw people on our team and so on and so forth. And so there's going to be ways that we're going to want to speak to them and conduct ourselves in a way that gains influence. But Paul says, no, you can't do that. If it's against the Lord's way, don't do it. Your chief aim always is to seek to please him. Thirdly, there was, there was no desire no desire for monetary gain. We pick this up also in verse 5. After he says, we never came with flattering speech, he says, we never came for a pretext for greed. So why that's so important is really simple. As an apostle of Jesus, of Jesus Paul had the right to be monetarily taken care of. 
It was his right and privilege as an apostle that he was financially supported. In 1 Corinthians 9, he speaks to the Corinthians who have failed to take care of him, even though they should have. And he makes this claim to them. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> Another rhetorical question. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? And then he makes this final statement. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we re reap a material harvest from you? And then he says, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. The Thessalonians then were commanded by God to take care of him, just like the Corinthians were. Paul knew that. But when he showed up, he never asserted that right. He never made money an issue between him and the Thessalonican people. Instead, he was going to go the extra mile, extra mile to ensure that nothing in his life would show that he was looking for money for the things he was teaching them. Much like the Greek philosophers and the charlatans of the day who would probably try to win a following and have, get paid. He's like, I want nothing to do with that. I want, never want money to be a hindrance to you receiving the gospel and my motives and you listening to me. So how did he go to the extra mile? We pick it up in verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So what happened was Paul and, and the, his companions chose to work and not rely on the hospitality of the Thessalonians for their provisions. So they show up in town. They know God has given them the right to be taken care of, but they don't want to exercise that right. And they're like, they have a huddle and they all talk and they say, listen, guys, I think it's best for the people to, to come to know to Jesus. If we work hard with our hands, we bear down, break our backs and do some labor so that we provide for ourselves. So that when we proclaim the message, nothing gets in the way of them accusing us of false motives. This is a remarkable. He's preaching the gospel. He's working hard night and day so as not to be a burden with anyone. Paul and Silas and Timothy would have had no problem putting their head down on the pillow at night and falling asleep in about 30 seconds. It was, an, it was a life-giving effort for the sake of Jesus. Now, I know it's unique in that um, financially he's an apostle, and so there's this uh, right to support, but he doesn't claim it. But you know, in our own lives, we can also compromise the gospel or be tempted to for monetary gain in the way we handle money. I hear lots of people, unfortunately, say things, I'd never do business with a Christian. Maybe you've said that yourself. Life experiences have told us that not everything is always up and uh, up to standard 
when it comes to people practicing what we preach. I'll tell you a quick story about the probably probably um, the two times that I was tempted the most and to compromise my faith for the sake of money. So those of you who don't know, I used to own the building behind us here and I had a gym in this building and I was a trainer and owned the business and I did massage therapy as well. And so what's interesting about massage therapy is that you get a limit of about $500. If you're on Sun Life, it was about 500 bucks a year for medical health, right? Once you use up your $500, you have to wait till the next fiscal year to claim it. Well, I had two clients in my gym that had used all of their personal Sun Life money up. And they came to my desk and they said, Andrew, can I talk to you? I'm like, no problem. They said, listen, uh, we'd like to continue in massage. Our money's up, but we'd like to give you the, uh, the, uh, uh, an extra 500 bucks. I'm like, well, how's that going to work? They said, well, my spouse ha also has medical coverage and they never use it. So can you start writing receipts for me in my spouse's name? Now, at the time, um, I had given up the, uh, I was only working 50% of my time in the gym now, and the rest was in ministry. And so, and this is not a complaint, because I'm well taken care of, but I was making more money per hour in the gym than I was in the church as a personal trainer. And so um, the temptation to make up the difference is pretty strong. <laughs> especially when I could get 75 to 90 bucks an hour for massage therapy. And I could feel the pull in, my, in me to go that way because their, their excuse was this, no one will ever know. No one will ever know because no one ever checks. Sun Life has millions of people to check on. They're not going to check on. And then I said to them, but I know. And I said, like, I, I am a Christian. And I said, and God knows. And so I can't do that. And it was awkward. At the desk, one person stuck around for 10 minutes and wouldn't leave. They kept trying to argue the case. Now, did they become a Christian because of that? Nope. As far as I know, from what I, haven't, from what I know of them, they haven't. But who knows? Maybe one day down the road, they will, and they will remember that moment. But regardless, as Paul said, our chief aim is to please God who examines our hearts, not man. Final thing that Paul did was he wouldn't assert his authority in verse 6. As an apostle, he said, Nor did we seek the glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we may have asserted that authority. As apostles, they're in the highest positions of power and honor and prestige that you can get in the church. They carried a title worthy of honor and respect and respect now. <laughs> if anything, they should be they should be getting served, not served, not serving others. Paul says, I didn't use my title in any way amongst you that would have asserted any rights over you. I wasn't a power-hungry apostle. In fact, as we're going to see in a minute in verses 7 forward, an alternative approach to his authority that he carried. 
But I just want to say to us, those of us who have positions of authority and those of people who are underneath us, especially in the area of work, we have to be careful. Do we see our employees as slaves who are there to serve us? Do we treat them as a little bit inferior and we kind of make it known that they're a little bit underneath us? How would that impact the gospel message one day if you start sharing to them about the attributes of God and then you don't demonstrate them yourselves in the workplace? It's important that we seek to please the Lord who examines our hearts and not men. So let's look then at the alternative. How did Paul conduct himself? If not asserting authority, as an apostle, what was his MO? How did he choose to live? Well, in verses 7 forward, we're going to see that he's going to use family language. Family language to describe his life amongst them. He's going to use the illustration of a mother and a father. Not a domineering boss <laughs> to explain who he was and how he acted. So let's look at the motherly figure in verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were so well, uh, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Notice the words gentle tenderly cares for, and fond affection. Again, these are not domineering uh, postures, pushing your way around. This is the idea of complete nurture and care. So just using a, an illustration with my hands and my arms, if you're an assertive type person with a domineering, uh, a domineering apostle, that's a top-down approach where I'm coming over top of you. As an apostle of Jesus, he says, I'm taking this approach <laughs> with you. The most intimate, the most intimate, closest connection between two human beings, right? A mom just completely loving her child. He says, that is the way I came to you. Again, like he's number one in the church, number one position in the church. And he says, I was like a tender mother amongst you. And he goes on to describe this in verse 8 by saying that his affection was so great that not only did he impart the gospel, but his very life. His very life. Paul and his companions did not just give a message. They gave themselves. See that? He did not just give a message. He gave of himself. This is not a picture of a quarreling evangelist getting in fights and arguments with every non-believer in the planet about who's right and who's wrong. This is about someone who's giving his life, laying it down, putting the Thessalonians' interests above his own so that they actually can see the love of Christ practically lived out in a human being. So that the gospel he proclaimed and the life that he lived were congruent with one another. But here is one key observation I do not want you to miss. 
when did they start to begin imparting their lives? When did the fond affection start? Before or after they became Christians? Before. It started before. We came not only to impart the gospel, so they're, as they're preaching, it's because they're in a the non-believing state. He says, as we're preaching the gospel, trying to convince you to become a Christian, at that same time, we're imparting our lives to you, giving of ourselves. The timing of that is so important, and this should just speak to us in volumes and application. The reason why we don't get involved with people is because we want their lives to be cleaned up and more respectable before we come to them. We want them to live more of a Christian life before we'll enter into their messy world. Paul's saying the opposite. My impartation of my life was in their messy world. Remember the description of verse 9. I remember how you turned from idols. What accompanied idol worship? Sexual immorality, prostitution at the temples. This is the life they're living. They're idol worshippers and they're sexually immoral. And that's, we've talked about this twice now, and like Okotoks is looking more and more and more like Thessalonica on a, on a monthly basis. Again, we have lots to learn from Paul and Silas and Timothy here. He had no problem engaging them in the muck and the mess. And so we can learn a lot from Paul. And that's what his motherly attitude looked like. But he continues with a fatherly example as well. So in verse 10, he says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, the father relationship is very different than the apostle domineering relationship. And I love the things that he says a father is to do. He says a father, this is a good Father's Day sermon, by the way. Um, for those of you who want to come up and preach that day. Um, he says, I implore each one of you as a father with his own children. He says you are to exhort and encourage and implore. Gordon Fee said this about these three words. All of this has to do with the moral training of a child. All of these things have a moral implication. And he said that Gordon Fee said that both Greeks and Romans would have recognized this is a father's duty. So Paul comes like a mother in the nurturing, caring, tender side comes like a father in the, the training side and the encouragement. Again, not a beat your kid into the ground time mentality with anger and, and the disgust, but this like encouragement and saying, hey, like, you know, go this way. This is God's way. And let me give you like a little friendly kick in the pants, but in a loving way to say, keep going, boy. Keep going, girl. This is what Paul was like amongst them. And, he, and they, therefore, had lived, according to verse 10, devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly, in other words, holy lives, in that way as a model to them so that they would know how to live themselves. And the culmination of the whole thing is really important is in verse 12. Why did they do all this training? 
Why did they live like a father? Why did they live holy lives in front of them? Verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The whole purpose of this thing was that you would learn what it is to follow Jesus and to live like Jesus. Not just in your words, but in your actions. And so the Thessalonians look over Paul, Silas, and Timothy's life, and they go, we see nothing in their character that is short of the gospel message they proclaim. In other words, we saw you, Paul, practicing what you preach. Now, I could ask about 15 to 20 questions off of this sermon. But my wife reminded me, don't do too much. It's too overwhelming. Just give us three or four things to think about. I'm like, okay, dear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. Okay. So here's the questions for you. Paul's confidence to spread the gospel came from his boldness in God and his desire to please him. How do you think Paul's basis for overcoming fear will change your own confidence in sharing the message of Jesus with others? You might think, well, my personality is not such and such like so-and-so's. My education in the scriptures, I'm not as smart in the Bible as so-and-so's. I didn't go to Bible school like so-and-so. Right? The list can go on. Well, they grew up in a more loving home, so they're more secure, and uh, I didn't, and whatever. Listen, the confidence from David was in the Lord, not in David. The confidence in Paul was not in Paul. It was in Jesus Christ, who he was and what he'd done for him. The more you grow closer to the Lord and put your trust in him, the more naturally you'll be willing to share. Because you know where your hope and security comes from. Number two, like Paul, it is important that our lives be consistent with the message we proclaim. What areas in your life need to be surrendered to the Lord so that nothing hinders the potential for the gospel to be received? Again, I get it. God's bigger than our faults and failures. Like, I mean, he can save anybody apart from us. But let's be honest, he partners with us. And if our lives didn't matter at times, there's no point in Paul going to this huge extent to the Thessalonians to remind them of how he behaved amongst them. So God can overcome our faults and failures, but that doesn't mean we're without excuse for to try to live holy lives in response to him. And so again, the question is, what areas, even this morning, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? What areas are like, man, I need, I need to grow? The Lord needs to soften my heart in these ways if I'm going to enter into the muck and mess of people's lives. And finally, Paul did not just give a message, but himself. Who is in your life right now that you would be willing to impart your life to for the sake of Christ, both in words and deed? I look across the room here, I haven't counted, but I'm going to guess 45 to 50 adults. Imagine what the Lord would do with 
45 to 50 adults that got on their knees tonight or tomorrow morning and said, Lord, who is the person that you want me to invest my life into and minister to? You might already have someone, you might already know the answer, but if you don't, who is that person? What do you think the Lord would do with that a year from now, two years from now, three years from now? What would the face of Genesis House and his church look like in this community? What would the testimonies be of the people that came to know Jesus if we were willing to do this? For me to do this, I'll be honest with you, is going to take a radical change in my schedule. You have to carve out time and make them part of your life in order for this to happen. It's, it's going to mean saying no to some things or saying yes to the same things you're doing, but including them in it. Those are the only two ways around a schedule that I can see. But Paul didn't write this with no intention behind it. He wrote it so that you and I would learn from his example.